turn in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2. We're going to finish chapter 2 today. And next week, Pastor Chris will begin to teach uh, chapters 3 and 4. And there is so much meat in Philippians. And verses 3 and 4, just like these, or uh, chapters 3 and 4, just like these first two chapters, are, are full of meat and encouragement for us as Christians. And so today we're going to answer some questions, look at uh, some things. But the main thing we're going to look at is when Paul says to work out your own salvation. And that has been a little bit of confusion sometimes in Christians' lives. It has been some kind of debate sometimes between different theologians. And so we're going we're gonna to look at that, and we're going to look at it closely. And this is something very close to my heart. And, and, and I'm not um, degrading any denomination here. But having been raised in the Catholic faith, believing that you had to be a Catholic to go to heaven. And I remember as a young kid, I used to think, why don't these other people become Catholics? They're not going to heaven. But now that God has saved me, I can see that I would have been one of those people saying, Lord, Lord, I did this in Your name. I, I, I tried my best to go to church every Sunday. I tried my best to go to confession every week. And I would have been one of those people that would have heard, depart from me, for I never knew you. And so it is, it is bondage for us to believe that our works can cause us to reach up to heaven instead of letting Jesus reach down from heaven and grab a hold of our hearts. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You, Lord, that there is nothing that we can do to obtain Your blessing and Your purposes for our life. And Lord, I know there are probably many in here that have been delivered from the bondage of works. And Lord, we thank You that You have led us to the narrow path. Lord, bless Your Word as it goes forth. And may it minister to hearts and minds. In Jesus' name, amen. There are some things that I am truly grateful for in my Catholic upbringing. I am grateful for the family values that were planted in me. Seeds that grew over time. It took me a while to become a good father a good husband, a good grandfather. But it was those seeds that were planted in my youth that have blossomed and, and, and grown. And I am so thankful for that because it was that upbringing that is, is bearing fruit in my life now. But again... I could have stood at the door and knocked and said, 
But Jesus, I was a good father. I was a good husband. I, I was a good grandfather. You know, my wife and I have, have raised one granddaughter and we're in the process of being the primary uh, raisers, I guess, if you want to use that term, of three more granddaughters now. And it's hard. But those family values of being dedicated to family came from that upbringing. And I praise God for that. So we're going to be in uh, verses 12 through 30 this morning. And we're going to look at verses 12 and 13 first. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence. And here's where Paul says it. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to do for His good pleasure. What an amazing thing. Being a born-again Christian, we know that God's will is working in our lives. And on top of that, it is for His pleasure that we glorify Him, that we further His kingdom. And when we walk in that, what a wonderful thing to know that we are pleasing God in all our faults, in all our foibles, in all our sins, we can still bring God pleasure. Amen? What an amazing thing. And so, as I've said the past two weeks, when we seem therefore, what do we do? Come on. Come on. Somebody. Adam. We go back and we find out what therefore is therefore. And so we go back to the last verses that we covered last week, and we have to go back to verse 8 through 11, which says, And being found in appearance as a man, he, meaning Jesus, humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death even the death of the cross. Therefore God has highly exalted Him and given Him the name, which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven, of those on earth, of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Now let's return to our verses, 12 and 13. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to do for His good pleasure. Jesus was humbly obedient. And... Humble obedience, guys, it's, it's an essential element for working out your own salvation. If, 
if you don't have obedience to God and, and what His calling is uh, upon your life, then you're going nowhere. You're not working out your own salvation. And so let's look at that. In Christ, we have an amazing example of His glory resulting from His obedience and resulting from His humiliation. And so, we also strive to be obedient. And when we're obedient and we are humble, our salvation will result in the same obedience to God as Jesus' obedience to God. And Paul goes on and he compliments the Philippians by saying that they have always been obedient, not just in His presence, but even more so when He's absent. And when Paul refers to His absence in these verses, really what he's saying, referring to working out their own salvation is, now that I am not present to further the work of your salvation, work out your own salvation and all the more carefully. And he's telling them, do not think that this work cannot go on because I am absent. He's saying, you, Philippian church, you you do not follow Paul. You follow God. You're not obedient to Paul. You're obedient to God. Follow that. You don't need me to, to lead you on that path of working out your own salvation in being obedient to God. And you know, when you look at this situation, the Philippian church, they could have crumbled. They could have ceased to exist if they had put all of their faith and all of their obedience into man instead of God. Paul, as we talked about before, was used by the Lord to plant this church, to plant the Philippian church. He planted it. He pastored it. He raised up leaders in the church. He mentored those leaders to take over the church. And it's the same in the mission field. Missionaries should not be in the mission field to stay there. They should be there to, to raise up the indigenous people to take over the work and move on, just as Paul did. Paul didn't stay in these churches and say, oh, I'm the pastor and... I'm going to stay here. If you look at the history of Paul, especially in Acts, it was plant, teach, mentor, raise up the leaders, and move on. Plant another church. Raise them up again. And that was the, you know, that was the history of Paul. And so, this is what happened. Paul left the Philippian church. He departed for the mission field to do what God was calling him to do, and he ended up in prison. And 
you know, when you look at it, that's what God was calling him to do was end up in prison. That was God's will. That was God's plan. And I think in some ways he was testing that Philippian church. How are you going to do when the leader, the planter of your church, how are you going to do when he's in jail under the threat of death? You see, it was their love for God and their love for Paul that they were drawing their strength. Here's Paul in prison writing letters and not saying, Oh, these chains hurt. I'm hungry. I'm thirsty. Nobody visits me. Oh, it's just so, so, so terrible. No, Paul's writing to the church and encouraging them through the joy that he has for them. And from this, from their obedience to God, from their love for Paul, they're drawing strength. And, and, and through that strength, this church is not only surviving, it's, it's growing and flourishing, even though they are going through the same things as Paul. Philippian Christians are being arrested. They're being jailed. And the church is growing. When a man or a church is in God's will, that man or that church will not fail or fall. It cannot because it's a work of God. It can change. It changed for me when I was in Africa. And all of a sudden, I had to come back to, to uh, America. I always believed it was God's will for me to be there for the rest of my Christian walk. It was my calling. And I know that I know that I know it was my calling. Of that, there was no doubt. But then it ended, and it ended suddenly. And I was like, Lord, this was my calling. But our calling can change. And we need to continue to seek God for the new will that He has in our lives. And he had a new will in my life. An amazing thing. But a work of God will not fail. Acts chapter 5, verses 38 and 39. We can see this fact in action. Peter and the, the apostles, after Jesus was crucified, and we all, and we all remember Peter going into the temple and the man asking him for alms, and what did Peter say? Neither silver nor gold do I have, but he touched him and he healed him in the name of Jesus Christ. And, of course, that news got back to the Sanhedrin, the, the Jewish council. They were not happy about that. He's preaching Jesus. They just killed him. But they knew that a miracle had been worked. It says that, that they knew a miracle had been worked 
and they couldn't explain it. So they brought Peter before them and said, you need to stop preaching and teaching in the name of Jesus. You need to stop healing people with miracles in Jesus' name. And, and so Peter and some of the other apostles, they go into the temple. This is after their miraculous, they're, they're thrown into jail. And, and think about this. They're thrown into jail. And they're sitting there. They are released by angels. They're taken out of the prison. But all the exits are still locked. They just disappeared. And so when the guards went to check on them, it's like they went back to the Sanhedrin and said, Hey, (laughs) we don't know what happened. They were there. They were in chains. They're gone. And all the, all the exits out of the prison are still locked. We don't know what happened. And so they're brought back before the Sanhedrin after going and preaching in Jesus' name in the temple again like they were ordered not to. And so Peter testifies to the Sanhedrin and he told them that the blood of Jesus was on their hands. And you can imagine that that some of them it pierced their hearts, I'm sure. Some of them it made them mad. And so the Pharisee Gamaliel, who was Paul's teacher and mentor in Judaism, he stood up and he said this. And now I say to you, and he's, and he's speaking to the Sanhedrin, And now I say to you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this work is of men, it will come to nothing. And that's still true. It will come to nothing. But if if it is of God, you cannot overthrow it. Lest you even be found to fight against God. What a prophetic statement. And you know, I believe that Gamaliel, at this time, I believe he may have begun to doubt what they did. Because he, he's, he's intimating that, really what he's intimating is that, you know, Jesus could have been the Messiah. And so, Leave these guys alone. If, if this is a work of God, it's, it's not going to fail. And I believe that maybe, just maybe, Gamaliel thought Jesus was who Jesus said He was. Yeshua. Hamashiach. Or Jesus, the Anointed One of God. And so, again, a work of God cannot be overthrown And guys, it has not been overthrown. Since that day that Peter said that, you know what, guys? We are connected to what he said. That work has not been overthrown. And we are the evidence of that. If it wasn't for Peter, if it wasn't for Paul, if it wasn't for the apostles and the early church, 
withstanding that horrible persecution that they were under, if Peter had said, oh man, they're going to throw me in jail again and maybe the angels won't miraculously uh, rescue me again, I'm going to stop preaching in the name of Jesus. It would have ended right there. But it didn't. That work of God was not overthrown. And the fact that we are here today, we are part of that event and we are part of that work. And it has not been overthrown. Amen? Now, I've been asked on more than one occasion if working out your own salvation means that we have to contribute our works to God's grace in order for us to have salvation. And I know most of you or all of you in here know that that's not true. We, are not, we know that we are saved by God's grace and God's grace alone. And that's it. Our works are to bring Him glory and honor and to further His kingdom. But they don't save us. It is His grace that saves us. When Paul says to work out your own salvation, what he means is work it out to its full perfection. You know, as we walk longer and farther with Jesus along the different roads that He has called us to walk, our salvation is being perfected. And salvation is a progressive work. And it's to be worked out by our obedience through the help of the Holy Spirit unto our perfection. We are working out. We are progressive. We are progressing not for our salvation, but we are progressing in our salvation to, to reach that goal at the end of our lives. And, and just as our body physically matures as we grow older, it's the same for our salvation. It matures as Jesus completes that good work in us. So think of it this way. You guys have probably seen that Christian church t-shirt. I know I've seen it numerous times. It says, under construction. Amen? We're all under construction. That sums up perfectly what it means to work out your own salvation. We're building. We're under construction. We have that foundation of God's grace and salvation. And now we're building on it. That is what Paul is talking about in working out our own salvation. Ephesians 1.11 says, In Him also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of Him, who works all things according to the counsel of His will. 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 5-8, through 8, But also for this very reason, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, to virtue knowledge, 
to knowledge, self-control, to self-control, perseverance, to perseverance, godliness, to godliness, brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness, love. For if these things are yours and they abound, remember back when I first started teaching, we talked about that word abound. It literally means a river that is overflowing its banks and flooding everything around it. And so Paul is admonishing us to let these things abound and overflow into the fields, into the mission fields, into our families, in, into our town, down the mountain, flood the, flood the valley, you know, in this way, there's no drought. We can flood the valley if these things that Paul's talking about are ours. And so, do, do, do you see the progress in that verse? This is the progress of a Christian who is under construction. Paul gives us really step by step by step of what it means to work out your own salvation and to pro- progress in that salvation. Faith leading to virtue. Virtue to knowledge. Knowledge to self-control. Self-control to perseverance. Perseverance to godliness. Godliness to brotherly kindness. And brotherly kindness to love. Love is the end game, brothers and sisters. Jesus was asked, Jesus What is the most important commandment in the law? And Jesus said that if you have love, you keep all the commandments. That is the end game for us. That's why Peter ends with love. He's telling us love is the end. When we have that love for our brothers and sisters, when we have that love for those that don't know Christ, when we have that love that we show to everybody, and I'm not saying we've arrived, but when we have that love that we show to everybody, we have come close to working out our own salvation. Paul continues in verse 12 and he says, not only to work out your own salvation, but to do it with fear and trembling. Paul's not saying that we should sit in a corner somewhere frozen, fearing and trembling about, am I going to be judged? Am I not going to be judged? What? Oh, I really fear God. You know, it, and, and, and at this time, they didn't have the New Testament. They were building it <laughs> with Paul's letters. But, but they did have their Old Testament. And they remember, and, and we should remember this too, when God said, I am an all-consuming fire. That's fearful. <laughs> And so, Paul's not saying sit in a corner frozen not doing anything and, and, and fearing and trembling because you're afraid God's going to consume you with His fire. 
1 Thessalonians 5.9 For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. As servants of God, we follow the examples of Christ. But we follow Him with fear and trembling. So what does that mean? We, we don't follow God. We don't follow Christ with mindless fear, like I was talking about. Oh, God's going to consume me with His fire. He's an all-consuming fire. But you know, we, we should tremble at the fact that we might not finish the race well, as Paul said. We might not keep the faith, as Paul wrote, when he knew that he was about to die. He knew he was not going to be released from prison. But yet, he said, I have kept the faith and I have finished the race well. That is something for us to, to not fear, to be frozen. But we should tremble that we might fall and we might not get up. We might go back to the world. We go back to the world, brothers and sisters. We're not going to finish the race well and we're certainly not going to keep the faith. And so... We can tremble at that. We can have some fear about that. And it, and it should cause us to have more faith. It should cause us to stay on that narrow path towards Jesus Christ, towards heaven. We have escaped God's judgment, brothers and sisters because we've been washed in the blood of Jesus Christ. Grab on to that. We say it all the time. I've been washed in the blood. Jesus has saved me. But, but grab on to that and meditate on it. Be in awe of what Jesus did for us. Verse 13 says, For it is God who works in you both to will and to do for His good pleasure. God is always present with us. And because God is present with us, we work out our own salvation. Though it is God who works that salvation in us. It's God who gives us the will and the power to work. But it's His grace that encourages us to make full proof of and carry out to the end. The salvation which He has first worked in us and is still working in us, enabling us to work it out. St. Bernard wrote, Our will does nothing without grace. But grace is inactive without our will. Everybody understand that? It's, it's our grace or our will that activates God's grace. We're entirely active and passive at the same time. God produces everything we need and we simply act on it. It's not that God does some and we do the rest. God does all. And because He does all, 
We do all because of His grace. Think of it as a play. God is the author, and we are the actors, following His script for our lives. Ezekiel 11.19, one of my favorite verses, because it's a prophecy in the Old Testament of the coming born-again experience. Ezekiel writes, Then I will give them one heart, and I will put a new spirit within them, and take the stony heart out of their flesh, and give them a heart of flesh, that they may walk in my statutes, and keep my judgments, and do them. And they shall be my people, and I will be my God. I will be their God. And so we can see that prophecy of the born again experience in the Old Testament. Family, God gave us a new heart. He gave us a soft heart. Before I was born again and I was in law enforcement, I had a pretty hard heart. And I think Adam could probably attest to that. I didn't care. The favorite saying, hook them and book them. And go on to the next one and hook them and book them. Take them to the jail. There you go, buddy. You earned it. But God softened my heart. And all of a sudden, I began to care for these people. I began to talk to them about their lives. I began to say, what has led you to this point? Adam and I just had this discussion with a young man that he knew that had been arrested. What's brought you to this point? And all of a sudden, I had care and concern for these people. That's that new heart, a heart of flesh, a soft heart. And we're accomplishing the calling that God's put on our hearts for His good pleasure. Verses 14 through 16, Paul writes, Do all things without complaining and disputing. Remember what Jesus said? Before you take the splinter out of your brother's eye. Remove the plank out of your own eye and then go minister to your brother about the splinter in his eye. Do all things without complaining and disputing that you may become blameless and harmless, children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. Among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life, so that I may rejoice in the day of Christ, that I have not run in vain or labored in vain. First Peter 2.9, and this is from the King James Version, because it uses a word that I really like. <laughs> but ye are a chosen generation a royal priesthood and holy nation, a peculiar people, that's a word I like, that ye should show forth the praises of Him who hath called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Brothers and sisters, we are a peculiar people to the world. Amen? The world does not understand us. The world sees we are different. And that that difference in us 
many times is what draws the world to Jesus Christ. Look at those Christians. Look how different they are. They're amazing. The world should not, and and guys, it cannot see us complaining and disputing with one another. Because when we do that, we're no longer peculiar. Just like, you know, that song with Michael Jackson from Coca-Cola. We are the world, you know. We become the world. When the world sees us doing that, they say, (laughs) you know, look at those crazy Christians. There's no difference. They're ripping each other apart. You know, I've heard the saying before, Christians eat their own. Anybody heard that before? Amen? What causes the world to have that view of, of, of us, of Christians? It's us acting like the world. It's us being in the world. There's nothing that's going to draw them to Christ when we are, are, are doing those things. And Paul talks about living in a crooked and perverse generation. That is our generation. Oh my gosh. OMG. That's, that is our generation. Look around and see what's going on in the world, in the Middle East. But guys, I'm talking about our own nation. Our own nation is crooked and perverse. I just read an article about some high school students. They wanted permission to start a pro-life club in their school. There's all kinds of clubs. They meet after school. They, they, they talk. They plan events. And so they wanted to, talk, to start this pro-life club. The high school administration said, oh, no, you can't start that. That will be too divisive. But yet, they do have a, great, a gay, straight alliance club that they have permitted to operate on campus. I read another article, and this just happened last week, and so did that. A teacher took elementary-aged school students to a sex shop for a field trip. And when she was confronted about it, and this was a private school, don't know if it's a Christian school, probably not. I would hope not. But when she was confronted about it, she had no shame. She had no embarrassment, and she boldly stated, they're not going to get sex education at home, so someone has to do it. Well, I can tell you the good part of this is students are being pulled from that school in droves. Their income is decreasing because of the anger that the parents have. They, they weren't notified. How many parents would, have, would you think would have said, oh, whew, I'm glad somebody else is going to tell them about the birds and the bees. I was dreading that. We live in a crooked and perverse generation. 
We are living in the generation that Isaiah talks about in Isaiah 5.20. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweetness and sweet for bitter. Remember what we just read in 1 Peter 2, verses 9. That ye should show forth the praises of Him who hath called you out of darkness and into His marvelous light. It's God's marvelous light that we must share and shine with this crooked and perverse generation. We cannot be silent about these things. These are our kids that are being destroyed and damaged. Imagine what those elementary school kids thought when they saw... Not going to say it. Luke chapter 11, verses 33 through 36. No one, when he has put a lamp, when he has lit a lamp, puts it in a secret place or under a basket, but on a lampstand, that those who come in may see the light. The lamp of the body is the eye. Therefore, when your eye is good, your whole body is also full of light. But when your eye is bad, your body also is full of darkness. Therefore, take heed that the light which is in you is not darkness. If then your whole body is full of light, having no part dark, the whole body will be full of light, as when the bright shining of a lamp gives you light. Verse 17, Paul goes on and he says, Yes, if I am being poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice and service of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Paul's comparing himself to the Old Testament sacrifices here. The sacrifices made under the law. Those offerings under the law had wine poured on them before they were made. Paul's comparing himself to the wine being poured out on the offering before he's executed. Verse 18, he says, For the same reason you also be glad and rejoice with me. And Paul's telling them, If I am to be made an offering on the altar of your faith, that he will rejoice. And Paul admonishes the Philip. <laughs> I was stationed in the Philippines. Sometimes I have a hard time with the word Philippians. Sometimes I say Philippines. <laughs> but Paul admonishes the Philippians that they are to rejoice with him also and not to despair. Verses 19 through 24. But I trust in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly that I also may be encouraged when I know your state. For I have no one like-minded who will sincerely care for your state, for all seek their own, not the things which are of Christ Jesus. This is what we were just talking about. People of faith, they had no trembling at how they were going to finish their race. They're not seeking the things of Christ Jesus. Verse 22, But you know His proven character, meaning Timothy, that as a son with his father, he served with me in the Gospel. Therefore I hope to send him at once, 
as soon as I see how it goes with me. But I trust in the Lord that I myself shall also come shortly. And that happened. This was not the imprisonment that Paul was going to be executed. That was his second imprisonment in Rome. But Paul says it's a comfort to have someone like-minded. Someone you can trust implicitly to continue the ministry of God. The ministry that God started. Last week I shared with you about the Lord giving me the great blessing of of planting a church in northern Uganda. And, And when I left there, I knew that the chaplain and pastor that I had left to continue God's work was like-minded with me. How important. And, and I know that Martin is not seeking his own glory. He's not seeking the things of this world. And I know that the church there knows his proven character. And they knew that Martin served with me in the ministering of the Gospel both in South Sudan and northern Uganda. And how do I know the church is flourishing? How do I know that Martin is still like-minded? I talked to him on Facebook. (laughs) And he keeps me filled in. I love Facebook for that reason. I have contact with many of my missionary friends. So let's finish with these verses. Verses 25 through 30. Yet I considered it necessary to send you To you, Epaphroditus, my brother, fellow worker and fellow soldier, but your messenger and the one who ministered to my need, since he was longing for you all and was distressed because you heard that he was sick. Epaphroditus was the messenger from Philippi who brought Paul his gift of support. We're not told how the church heard that Epaphroditus was sick but that they knew he was. But I want you to notice, Epaphroditus is displaying the exact things that Paul has been talking about. Obedience, humility. You know, back then it wasn't really safe to, to travel. Epaphroditus probably walked most of the distance to Philippi or to Rome from Philippi to bring that gift of mission support to Paul. This is a dangerous thing. To travel. He's carrying a gift. Money. Whatever else he was carrying. He could have been robbed. But God protected him. He was, he was displaying that obedience and, and, and that humility. Epaphroditus put the interests of Paul and the church before his own because the church was concerned about him being sick. He wasn't like Paul. He wasn't saying, oh, I'm so sick. Oh, you know, tell the church that I'm miserable. And no, he's, Epaphroditus is concerned about the church knowing how he's doing. He's concerned how they are feeling. Paul goes on, he says, for indeed he was sick almost unto death. But God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. You know, it's a fearful thing to be sick unto death in the mission field. It's, it's happened to me, but that's, that's another story. 
But the one that I do want to share with you is it happened to my 10-year-old granddaughter, who's 19 now, but I had her in Sudan with me for two months. She contracted a serious case of malaria. And it was, her fever was uncontrollable. Couldn't get it down. She was delirious, talking out of her head. And I, I confess to you, I was, I was very afraid. I know the Bible says I'm not supposed to be afraid. But, but we get afraid. And so I confess that to you. I was in fear for my granddaughter. And I sat by her bed all night long, praying for her, changing the, the, the washcloth on her head. And I said, God, do not let me fall asleep. I want to lay hands on her and pray for her all night long. And meanwhile, the chaplains were praying and fasting for her. And it was fearful. I fell asleep. <laughs> About 2.30, I fell asleep. I woke up at 3.30 and I looked at my watch. And I'm like, oh, I fell asleep. Oh, my gosh. And so I got to pray for Drina and I put my hand on her forehead. It, it was completely normal. Her breathing was deep and normal. And you know when you have a fever and, and the fever breaks especially the, like the fever she had. You drench everything when your fever breaks. And so I thought, and you're, cold, and you're cold and clammy. The pillow was dry. The linens were dry. It wasn't that her fever broke. It was just gone. And we were waiting. We had already notified Missionary Aviation Fellowship in Uganda and they were going to fly in the next morning and, and, and take her to Kampala, the capital of Uganda, so that she could be put in the hospital. But the next morning she woke up. And she wanted to go out and run around and, and, and play on the compound with the kids that were there. And I'm like, Drina, you, you know, take, take a break, take a rest, you know. God, God worked a miracle last night and you need to think about that and meditate on it. I want to go play, Papa. You know, God is, is, is amazing. And, you know, I think in general we can have this erroneous view of Paul that he was always strong, always joyful, never despairing, never sorrowful. But verse 28 says, Therefore I sent him the more eagerly, that when you see him again, you may rejoice, and I, be, I may be less sorrowful. You know, Paul is a man. He had sorrow. He wasn't always joyful as, as we can sometimes think that he was. And so, brothers and sisters, as we close, let us attend to our own walks. Let us attend to working out our own progress of salvation. That should be enough for each one of us not paying attention to how other people are working out their salvation. Not looking at someone who's struggling instead of praying for them. Talking to others. Oh, did you see? Oh my gosh. How could they do that? Paul saying to the Philippians, You are doing well and trusting in the person and works of God for the survival of the church and not trusting in the person and works of Paul. We need to work out our own salvation 
I need to work out my own salvation without disputing, without complaining about others. Again, the calling that the Lord has put upon all of our hearts is enough for our concern. The Philippians now have the opportunity to send Paul his gift. You go back in time and you think about it. They didn't have an opportunity. They didn't always have an opportunity to send Paul a gift. You know, when they would get news where Paul was, that news could possibly be three to six months old because of the travel time it took to go between here and there. And they knew, well, if we send a gift to there, Paul is probably not going to be there. And then they would hear again, oh, Paul's here. But then they they would know that, well, Paul has probably moved on because it's four months later. They didn't have the opportunity to send Paul a gift, but now they know where he is. And they know he's in one spot. And so they sent Epaphroditus to take that gift. The calling that the Lord has put upon all of our hearts is enough for our concern. And, and, and guys, an easier way to put all this is, it's God who does the construction, but we can certainly get in His way of what He wants to do in our lives. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You, Lord, that we can progress in our salvation, that we can uh, take part, Lord, that we can fan the fire that You have placed in all of us, that we can fan that fire into activation and act upon the grace that we have received so abundantly. And Lord, we thank You and we bless You, Jesus. It's in Your name we pray. Amen.